Well, before we get started, we just uh, we felt like it'd be appropriate as a leadership to just address the situation we find ourselves in as a church and as a province as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID. And I think that many of us were hopeful that coming into the fall that much of this would be behind us. And I think we're realizing uh, it's not. And so um, throughout the entire pandemic, our approach and our disposition as a leadership has been pretty consistent. And that is we trust the government. We trust the health authorities and we have followed their recommendations and their restrictions throughout the past year and a half. And that's something that we are committed to maintaining moving forward. We all know that we have a beautifully diverse community here at Lakeview. And at times that means that we have a range of opinions and ideas on how we do this well. And we are committed to doing the best that we can to honor our whole community and to make our whole community feel like the ways we are handling this feel right and good to you, recognizing it's never gonna be exactly the way any of us would have it, but we're doing our best to do this as a collective community. Right now, we're in a challenging season because we know that there are cases on the rise in our city and in our province. And also we recognize that there are currently no restrictions on worship gatherings at this moment. And so uh, our approach moving forward, at least for now, is going to be we continue to trust the government. And so we are not planning to introduce any restrictions or requirements regarding masks or social distancing at this time. But we also take the recommendations of the health authority seriously, especially when it comes to the benefits of masks. And we encourage our community to take those recommendations seriously. Additionally, uh, our government and our health authority has been incredibly consistent and incredibly clear when it comes to the recommendations for those who are medically able to get vaccinated. And so we echo the sentiment and we encourage everyone in our community who is medically able to get vaccinated as an effort to respond to this in love together as community. We know that this is going to mean that some people are gonna feel unsafe gathering here because they're gonna wish that we would put more restrictions in place to make it safe. And we are committed to finding creative ways to continue to make our Sunday services accessible and safe and inclusive and welcoming for as many people as possible. And we invite you to like work with us as we strive to maintain a sense of unity and as we strive to do this in love as community. So we invite you to just prayerfully consider the ways that you're gonna play your part in helping us as a church community continue to navigate these uncertain times well. If there's anything that you'd like to process further, I personally wanna make myself available that if you ever wanna call or talk or speak about these kind of things, I would be more than willing to chat about that. We recognize this is, this is hard. This is not easy for me to stand here and, and, and say these words. And yet I'm confident that God goes with us. I'm confident we can do this as a church. And we invite you to join in, to play your part. And let's strive to do this in love and unity as best as we can. We're going to continue in worship as a collective community through community prayer. And uh, there's going to be prayers that I share that if you like, you can 
join your hearts with mine in offering these prayers to God. And then there'll be moments, there'll be pauses where you can add your own prayers to mine. So let's bow our hearts and let's pray. God, we join together as your people. You have declared that together we are your family. We are joined together as sisters and brothers by the bond of your love. You have declared that together we are your body. We are all valuable members and we all have an important role to play. You have declared that together we are your temple. As we join together, your presence is with us. You are among us in a profound and powerful way. So together now, as your people, your family, your body, your temple, we join our hearts in prayer. We remember who you are and we pause to remember that we are yours. Together we say, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we know that there are friends and family among us who are hurting, members of our community who are grieving, people we care about who are stressed, anxious, and carrying heavy burdens. So we take a moment to remember those in our community who are facing significant challenges. We bring them before you in prayer we ask that you would care for them. We ask that you would bring peace where there is unrest, joy where there is sadness, healing where there is pain, hope where there is sorrow. So we take a moment to pray for those who are hurting. Together. Lord, hear our prayer. God, we take a moment to pray for our world. We're so aware of the hardship many people are facing all over the world. We know of so many heartbreaking stories of people who are displaced, who have experienced great loss. We grieve with those in Nigeria, Afghanistan, Haiti and other parts of the world who have suffered great loss in recent weeks. We groan along with your creation at the troubles that plague this world. But we also know that suffering is not the only reality of our world. We know that there are countless untold stories of courage, generosity, peacemaking, 
and selfless love that stretch across our world. So we pray that you would encourage the spirits of those who are working for good all over the world amidst challenging circumstances. We pray for a spirit of unity to captivate humanity. We pray especially for our own country and our own city as we navigate elections and opinions on restrictions and ideas about what is, what is best for our community. These things weigh heavy on our hearts. And so we pause and we bring them before you. We pray for our world. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we want to be a people who anchor ourselves in your story. Help us to receive your word this morning. Plant your message deep in our hearts that it might grow and bear fruit in our lives. As we listen to the story of Israel and as we retell the story of Christ's death and resurrection, help us hold firm to the hope that you are God, you are good, and you are working to set all things right in our world. Amen. So I have realized over this summer during COVID that I have become an old man. Uh, <laughs> some of you are laughing because you're like, you're not even close to being old. Some of you are laughing because you're like, you are incredibly old. You didn't know that already? Um, but I've become an old man, not because of my age, I'm only 24, uh, but because I have fallen in love with golf, and I know that that makes me really old on the inside. I love golf, and I love golf so much that I don't even love just playing golf. I love watching it on TV, which is like next level old man style. Um, <laughs> but the problem is, is I'm not very good at golf. So I got a driving range membership at the beginning of uh, this summer because we were still kind of locked down-ish. And I was like, I need to go outside and do something physical. And nothing's more calm than being out in nature and taking all your aggression on society on a tiny golf ball. Um, and the thing is, I haven't golfed until this year in like seven years. So when I showed up, I was like, how hard can this be? Like, there is a small ball, you have the stick, you hit the ball. But uh, it's a lot harder than you think it is. <laughs> Either that or I'm really bad. So when I first showed up to the driving range, you know, I was all prepared. I had my club. I went and I swung as hard as I could and I didn't hit the ball. And so you do one of those things where you like swing it and then you kind of just like play it off. Like that's what you wanted to do. Like you're like, that was a practice swing. And you kind of look around, you're like, yeah, it was. I wasn't trying to hit anything, guys. And then you go back, and it was like, okay, this time I'm going to hit the ball. I'm going to get myself ready. I'm really going to hit it this time, and I'm going to be the next Tiger Woods. And so I, like, held it, and I was ready, and I did the same thing. I swung, and I hit the ball, 
But <laughs> the ball didn't go where I wanted it to. It went like directly this way, which I don't even know how that's actually possible. It's supposed to go straight or like, high, but it went like this and it almost hit the guy beside me. And I immediately was like, oh no, <laughs> this is not good. And I was like, you know what? That was just, this is just, we're just working through it. And so I, I tried one more time with this club. I was like, okay, this time is the time where it's like a hole in one. I'm going to be awesome. This is going to be sweet. And I hit it. And sure enough, I hit it straight. And I hit it like that far. And I was like, okay, it's the club's fault. I'm going to put it back in the bag because clearly the club is just not recognizing my greatness in golf skills. And it must be the club's fault. And so I got a different club. And the whole whole game changed. So I became amazing uh, just with the change of the club. No, I was still terrible. And I'm still not very good. But I'm a lot better now. Um, but I think that that is something that we struggle with as human beings. We have this thing that we want to happen. And when it doesn't happen, usually because of our own fault, we like to blame something else. Where, like me in golf, it was never me that was bad at golf. It was the club that was dumb and didn't do what I wanted it to do. And maybe if I spent more money, I could have got a club that actually worked. Um, and we have been in this book, Second Kings, with the series How to Wonder, talking about Israel and, and how they have had these prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and they've done all these crazy things, and they've constantly said to Israel, hey, God wants to use you. God wants to make you guys awesome. But if you guys don't stop doing what you're doing, it's not going to go great. And Israel has continually gone, nope, God's the problem. <laughs> and we are questioning whether or not God is faithful. We're questioning whether or not God is good. And we're going to continue doing what we want to do. What they have continued to do is do what I did with golf, which was blame the club when actually the problem and the reason why they end up in the predicament they end up in when they write this book to figure out how did we get here was actually themselves. And I actually think that that is often the problem. It's that God isn't the problem. We are, which is not controversial at all. So with that, let's conclude our series. Let's see what Elisha has to offer us today in Second Kings. It says this, the prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramath Gilead, where you will, oh no, I'm dyslexic, I lost where I was, where, yes, when you get there, there we go, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, take him into the inner room, take out the flask, pour the oil on his head, and declare, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel, then open the door and run. Don't delay. So the young prophet went to Ramath Gilead, where he arrived, and he found an army of officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us, asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up, went to the house, and then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head, and he declared, this is what the Lord God, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants and the prophets and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, 
as for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will be able to bury her. Then he opened the door, and he ran away. When Jehu went to his fellow officers, one of them asked, is everything all right? Why did this maniac who keeps running away and taking you into strange rooms, why did he come to you? Uh, you know the man, the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true. They said, tell us. And Jehu said, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. And they quickly got their cloaks, spread them under him uh, on the bare steps, and they, and they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. That's kind of a weird story. So Israel needs a king. Elisha does what prophets do and go, okay, God wants this guy to be king. He sends some guy. Some guy runs there, and he's like, hey, you need to take him in private, and then you need to pour oil on him and tell this, and then you need to, like, run away for some reason and not explain yourself. And so this guy shows up. Everyone's like, oh, here's the weird dude who comes to places and tells people things and rubs this oil on their head and then runs away. He takes him away, tells him the stuff, says, you are going to be the king that God is going to use to finally do what you've been waiting for, what Israel's been waiting for. You're going to take out the enemies who are oppressing you. You're going to take care of these false gods and idols. You're actually going to be awesome and legit. And so he pours him with the oil, and then he runs away. And then all the guys are like, that was weird. What happened? He's like, I'm king. And everyone's like, okay, we accept it, and we'll just roll with it. Um, and that's what happens. And so in the next couple chapters, um, Jehu does exactly what he was told he was going to do. He takes out the armies who are oppressing Israel. He takes out their enemies who are holding them captive. And then he also takes all the false gods and false idols that Israel has been worshiping instead of Yahweh, and he destroys them. And the thing that I find interesting about this is that God doesn't have, like, a council to, like, ask Israel if this is what they want to do. That he's just like, this is the right thing that needs to get done, and I'm going to do it. Whether you like it or not, you guys are being set free from these oppressive people, and I'm going to destroy the idols you keep worshiping instead of me. And I think that <laughs> it, it, it makes us as Westerners uncomfortable because we're like, wait a second, shouldn't I have some say in this? Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of like this. So I got a dog in COVID, like everybody else. And this is my dog. Look at him. Oh, isn't he cute? Look at that. Wearing a bandana. That wasn't my choice. That was someone else's choice. Um, but he's cute. And he's awesome. And actually, he is weird. Like, And I don't mean weird that he does weird things. I mean weird as in every puppy I meet is like the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Where they are just chaos. They don't stop running or, like, jumping or biting people, and they bark all the time, and they can't figure out where they're supposed to go to the bathroom, and it seems like their ears don't work, and they don't listen to you when you want them to. And that's not this guy. He has always been sleeping and, like, quiet and calm, and he listens most of the time. Uh, he's been awesome. But everyone warned me there was going to be this time he would turn into a teenager. And like human teenagers, he would not be this sweet, awesome thing anymore. He would start being like, wait a second. You're not the boss of me. I'm my own person. And you have been holding out on me all these good things. You tell me not to eat your books. But maybe the books taste really good. And so I'm going to eat all your books. And you know what? You didn't want me to eat toilet paper. I think maybe you're holding out on me. So I'm going to eat every toilet paper roll that you place out. And I am done being a quiet dog. I know that it makes you mad when I bark at you. 
and it gets you off the couch and chases me around the house, which is fun. So I'm going to start barking at you so that you get off the couch and chase me around the house. Now, my dog is dumb. He doesn't know that the reason why he can't eat books or toilet paper or bark at me is because those are bad for him. Things are not going to end well. If he eats my books, he is going to not only make me very disappointed and mad, but he's going to get sick. If he eats toilet paper, not only is he going to make me very disappointed and mad, he's also going to get sick. If he barks at me, he's just going to make me mad. And that's that's okay. That's reason enough to not bark at me because I'm the one who feeds you and gives you life and you would be useless without me. You have no idea what to do. You would not survive in the wild. And so I have all of these rules and things I do, not because I mean and don't care about my dog, It's actually because I love my dog, and I, like it or not, like a parent and a teenager, actually know what's best. Which teenagers, you go, no, they don't. Just wait till you're like 21, and you're in college. You go, holy cow, I don't know how to live at all. I've been wrong the whole time. And this is like Israel, where God knows what he needs to do. (laughs) He knows that even though Israel, throughout this book, has kept trying to be other nations, that that's actually not what's best for them. That actually the best thing for them is to be different, to not be like everybody else. And so he's not gonna hold a committee as to whether or not Israel thinks that they need to be like other nations. He's gonna just take care of it. And in the same way, worshiping these false gods is not good for Israel. And he's not gonna hold a committee to ask them, hey dummies, do you think you should worship gods who have all these kinds of really horrible sacrifices that if you actually study them, it makes like the Taliban look like a joke. It's like, this is actually really bad, and I'm going to take care of it. And that's actually because God is good. And Israel has been looking at God, looking at where they end up at the end, which we'll get to, and going, God, how are you good that we've ended up like this? And God goes, don't you get it? The whole time I sent Elijah and Elisha telling you what was good because I knew what was good, and you just thought I was holding out on you. And like my dumb dog, You started eating Greek New Testament books and getting sick instead of trusting me. And so I want to ask you this. Do you know that God is good in your own life? Do you actually trust him? And I know that it's easy to be like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know God's good. But like, actually, because even for myself, it's like every time I sin or do something I know that isn't what God wants, it's because in the moment, I think that I know better, (laughs) that somehow this time, sin is going to work out. I know it hasn't worked out for me all the times before, but I know this time is the time it's going to be different. Or maybe it's just the way that you live, that you look at the other societies in life and you think, I don't know, I read the Bible and it says some crazy things that I don't understand and I don't know if I agree with and society is pushing back on me for some of these beliefs. And I think society might be right. And in that, we choose that God isn't good that actually we do what Israel does and go, maybe God's holding out. Maybe this is actually better. Maybe this is, but do you actually trust in the way that you live that God is good? Do you like my dumb dog? (laughs) I think I'm holding out on you. But Elisha's not done. He's still alive. So he's got to die at some point. He's not Jesus. Um, Now, Elisha had been suffering from an illness from which he died, which I just want to stop. This is a whole different sermon. But I think that's so interesting that this guy who, like, did all these crazy miracles and, like, raised a dead kid to life dies of a normal illness. Like, that's just, that baffles me. Um, but uh, 
Jehoash, king of Israel. So Jehu died. It's a little bit later. Different king. Uh, went down to see Elisha and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get your bow and some arrows. And then he did so. Take the bow in your hands. And he said to the king of Israel, when he had taken it, uh, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window, he said. And he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said. And he shot. And the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. And he said to him, take the arrows. And then the king took them. And Elisha told him, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry, and he said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. What are you doing? Three times? What's wrong with you? Uh, then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will be defeated because you only struck it three times, you dummy. Uh, Elisha died, and then he was buried. And now a Moabite raiders used, they used to enter the country every spring. Once in a while, the Israelites were burying a man. Suddenly, they saw a band of raiders. And so they threw the dead man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, a man came back to life, and he stood to his feet. That's got to be weird. All your friends are gone. You're in the middle of a tomb. Last thing you know, you're on your deathbed. Now you're laying beside some dead guy. And you're like, this is, what is going on? And then the raiders come and attack you. Uh, that's just a strange story. Uh, Aziel, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion, and he showed concern for them uh, because his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Hazael, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him. Then Jeho Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, man, there's a lot of crazy names, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, in the towns he had taken in battle from his father, Jehoaz. Three times Jeho Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. So... There's a lot of craziness in that passage, and I know you're wondering what I'm wondering when I read that passage and found out I had to preach from it. It's like, what the heck are you going to get from that story? Um, and so we're going we're gonna to try and see what the author of Kings is trying to say here. Um, and, and so Elisha is terminally ill. He's going to die. Before he dies, the current king comes to him and says, we're in a lot of trouble. We're going to die. We're going to be taken over. Elisha says, you know what? Grab your bow. Shoot out the window. The king's like, okay, I'll do this weird thing. I'll shoot my arrow out the window. Hope it doesn't hit anybody on the way down. He shoots his arrow, and Elisha goes, there you go. God's going to give you victory. And then he's like, take your staff and stomp it. And then the king does. He takes a staff, one, two, three. And then Elisha says, you're stupid. You should have done it four or five times. What are you doing with three? That's not nearly enough times. You're going to get taken over. And then he dies. This is a weird story about his bones. And then... Something important happens. God could have just gone, stupid king, you didn't do it enough times. Which also, by the way, if you look at like what scholars say, it's not just like a weird magic code that he was supposed to know like four or five times he did three. It's actually that inside. He thought Elisha was a little weird, which I mean, come on. If you went to someone's house and said, hey, uh, my enemies are going to come to kill me. What should I do? And he was like, stomp your staff. You'd kind of be like, one, two, three. Like, Okay. <laughs> That's a weird thing. And he kind of had that attitude if he didn't actually trust Elisha and he didn't trust God, and he kind of half-heartedly stomped his staff, and that's why God says that to him. And so God in that moment had full right to just be like, you dummy, I'm not going to help you anymore. You guys are on your own. 
see, you don't trust me. But instead, it says that in those battles, and even he says, you'll win three times, but it's going to come back to haunt you. It's not, you're not actually going to win. In those battles, God says that he remembers his covenant, that he remembers that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would use these people, that he would use Israel to bring new creation, to bring a new kingdom, to actually deal with sin and death and fix what has been broken in our society and in us. And so in those battles, he remembers Israel, and he remembers his promises, and he goes, I'm going to remain faithful, even though Israel time and time again has proven to be faithless. And he saves them, and he brings them victory, even though they didn't earn it or deserve it. When I went to college, (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing, like I said before. It's like, I know everything, and then you go out into the world, you're like, I don't know anything. Uh, can I go back to high school, please? Um, and one of the things I didn't know how to do was taxes, because up until this point, I'd work a job, and then I would, like, give this paper in the mail to my parents and say, I don't know what any of this means. Can you handle this? And it was like, yep, we have someone who does that for us. It was like, cool. Uh, but I didn't have that when I became an adult. I didn't have my own person to do my own finances. So it was up to me. So I did what any responsible teenager does, is I downloaded TurboTax. I was like, I'm smart enough to figure this out. I took pre-calculus. How hard can this be? (laughs) So I look at the forms. I look at the screen. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm supposed to fill it like this. I fill it. Everything seems to be going great. I'm like, I am a genius. I don't need parents. I'm smart. Um, And then by the end of it, (laughs) the government was like, hey, you owe us thousands of dollars, and you better pay up. And I was like, oh, no, I have no money. (laughs) I can't do this. I'm really in trouble. And so I did what any responsible teenager does. I called my dad. And I said, Dad, you've got money. (laughs) Can you please help? I can't do this. I have no money to pay. And Dad, like a responsible parent, said, I'm not going to pay your taxes. I'll pay for it, but you're going to have to pay me back. I'm not just going to pay it for you. We'll figure it out. I got you covered. And I was like, okay, phew. And luckily, I didn't know what I was doing. It turned out the government owed me thousands of dollars, and everything turned out great. I was fine, which I should have. That should have been the first cue, because I shouldn't have owed more money than I actually made. But again, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and the thing is, my dad in that moment, he could have done two things. He had every right to look at me and go, son, you're dumb. Why didn't you do your taxes right? You're on your own goodbye, you're an adult, you made this decision, so sad, why don't you have any money, it's because you're dumb, see you later. And he didn't. He remembered that I was his kid, and he looked at me, and he went, I'm going to be faithful to my son, and promise to pay his tax money if he pays me back, Um, and he was going to take care of it for me. And in the same way, God in this story looks at Israel and goes, you dummies, (laughs) you're in a lot of trouble, and it's all your fault. But you're my kids. I love you. I'll pay your taxes. I'll take care of these armies for you. I remember my covenant. I'm going to remain faithful. And of course, we know the second big question that Israel has been asking throughout this book is, is God faithful? And what God has shown time and time again is that he is, that he will not give up on his people, that he will not leave them alone, that even when they're stupid and deserve to die, He's going to step in and save them. And so I want to ask us this question. 
do we know that God is faithful? And I think this is harder than we actually think it is because I know at least for myself, when stuff doesn't go the way I thought it would, usually because of my stupidity, I don't trust God in it. And I'm not trying to preach like a prosperity gospel, like if you lose all your money, God promises you health and wealth. Elisha dies of a disease but could heal people. That doesn't make sense. But somehow in that, God is still faithful to him. And in the same way, with the way we live our lives, do we act like people who know that God is faithful, that he actually loves us and cares for us, and that he is someone who is pursuing us and looking after us, even if we mess? And do we trust that when we mess up, when we sin, that God is faithful to step in and help us with that? Or do we sit there when we sin and like just feel this immense amount of guilt and like it's all on us to pay our own taxes, to figure out how to clear the mess we've made ourselves? Or do we just in the way we live our lives not trust God to step in and do the right thing? That when we do things that society doesn't like, when we do things our parents don't like, our friends don't like, and we live differently, do we trust that God actually has a better plan for us? And even though we don't understand how this is going to go right now, and it might lead to something terrible, that we're going to be faithful and trust that God is faithful and isn't going to just leave us to die a horrible death. Not that you won't die a horrible death. That's not a promise. But that he is still there and faithful through it, using it for something, even if I don't get it. Or are we like Israel and we look at the mess we've made in our own lives and go, God, you're not good. You're not faithful. Look at this mess. Because, as we've seen throughout this book, the problem has never actually been God. God has continually shown up and gives second chances. He's done the right thing. The problem has always been Israel in that they don't, they're not actually good. That they are a not good people following a good God. And they are a not faithful people following a faithful God. And as the story goes, so this is like midway in Second Kings. If you keep reading, it only gets worse. <laughs> Where Israel, you think like after all this, they would learn some kind of lesson to be like, yeah, we trust God and we think he's faithful. Well, stick with him. They don't. They continually worship false gods. They do horrible atrocities that would make us terrified of the kind of people they are. They decide to side with other nations instead of being a different people. They want to be like everybody else. And so God eventually goes, okay, if you want to do what you want to do, if you want to be like other nations, I will let you be like other nations. I will let you so much be like another nation that you are going to be ruled by them, that you will be just like them. And if you want to worship other idols and have a different God, okay, I will give you a different God. But it's not me. You're on your own. And I hope Baal can help you out because that's what you have continually chosen to do. And so as Israel sits in this predicament of at the end of the book, they are ruled by Babylon, which is not a nice empire, but it's an empire that they chose to be a partner of that didn't turn out so well. And it seems like God isn't talking to them anymore. And they can sit there and think, God, are you good? Are you faithful? But the whole point of Kings is to be like, actually, yes, he is. The goodness and faithfulness was never his problem. It was actually your problem. And in the same way, I think we still are like Israel, and it's easy to look at these stories and be like, what a bunch of dummies. But we continually ourselves, I do it myself, where I know what God calls of me. I know that it's actually in my head, I know it's a better way. 
but I continually live in a different way where I don't actually love my neighbor. Or when I'm online on social media, I like constantly just want to like see an opinion I disagree with and just light that person up and tell them how stupid they are and they need to get their life together. Or when I'm in work, people don't always do things I want. And sometimes I just want to be like, let's blow this place up. I'm in charge now, guys, which would be terrible. I would run this place into the ground so fast, you would have no clue how quickly this place would burn. But sometimes I'm like, can't you guys see how smart I am? I've got all the best ideas. I'm so stupid. Um, and you can sit there and be mad about the people you work with. And instead of loving them like God has called you to or submitting to the people that are in charge of you, like the Bible says, because that's not very fun. Or even in, in my relationship, like I hate to break it to you, like I'm not perfect. And as much as I love Emily, she's not perfect either. And so there's disagreeances. And when we disagree, do I act like it's my way or the highway and she needs to just get in line with the way I want? Or do I do what God has called me to do and love her? Because in all those things, I have continually shown that I don't trust that God's good and that I'm actually not good myself and I'm not faithful to him and the things he's called me to. And the thing is, I can look at all that and be like, God, why aren't you doing what I want you to do? But the thing is, is that God um, isn't the problem. We are. And so I want to ask you this question. It's that, do you know that you actually need saving? Because here's the thing. Like Israel, I can't do anything about the problems. I'm not a good person. I'm not. I've shown time and time again I'm not. The person who has let me down most in life is myself. And I have shown time and time again, I'm not a faithful person. And the thing is, like Israel, there's nothing I can actually do to stop this. Like, I can't just, like, will it into power that I am now a good person. That I still continually will choose to do not good things as hard as I try. And I will continually choose to not be a faithful person as hard as I try. And I need someone to actually come and save me. And, and, and I need someone who is better than Elijah and Elisha. I need someone who not only comes and tells me, hey, dummy, here's what you need to do. I actually need someone to do it, because I can't. I can't do it. And that person, of course, is Jesus. <laughs> and as part God, part man, fully God, fully man, he was actually the person able to step in and say, I am going to do the thing you can't, because God is so good and so faithful that instead of abandoning you, he came and did what you could never do. That he came as Jesus, and he was the good person that you haven't and can never be. And he was the faithful person that you haven't and could never be. And so that's why we celebrate this thing called communion. It's because we look at a book like Second Kings and go, wow, God, we are screwed up. And we still are. And Jesus is actually the hope that God goes, I know you're screwed up. And I know that you eat books that you shouldn't eat. And I know that you continually swing your golf clubs and blame me, thinking that it's my fault when it's actually yours. But I don't care. I still love you. And I came and I died for you. And I lived the life you couldn't live. And I died the death you couldn't die. And I rose again so that I could offer you my life instead. And I'll take all your unfaithfulness and not goodness onto myself and deal with it. And you can have my goodness and faithfulness. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And, and 1 John um, says, oh, I don't, there we go. 1 John says this in verse 7. It says, the blood of Jesus, 
his son, God's son, purifies us from all sin. That when you accept Jesus into your life, it does not matter how not good you are or how unfaithful you are or continue to be, that you are covered, whether you like it or not. (laughs) If you have accepted Jesus, there is nothing you can do to actually lose what you've been given, that you are good and you are faithful, not because you're good or faithful, but because he has been for you. And that isn't like a invitation card to be like, so go out and sin and do whatever you want. It's actually uh, the response is that we want to follow someone who does that for us. That someone who loves us that much that they could have just left us in our mess and they didn't. Like that's someone I want a relationship with. And so we celebrate communion because we realize that God isn't the problem. We are. And that he actually saved us. And um, Jesus gave us this weird ritual we do that mildly sounds like cannibalism if you don't know what's going on, where you're like, you're eating his body and drinking his what? This doesn't sound weird at all. Where it's actually that in this, we remember that in this cardboard thing, in this tiny little bit of juice, uh, that Jesus broke his body for us, that he paid for our not goodness and unfaithfulness for us. And the same thing with the juice is it represents his blood, that his blood shed for us and covers us that we are now the people he's called us to be, and we can be the nation he's called us to be. Not like everybody else, but set apart.